Before we get into our sermon, I'd like to ask you to get your bulletin out, this handsome new bulletin we have, and turn to the last page. Just want to remind us the sermon series we're in and give you a couple thoughts about how you might engage with it. We're in a sermon series called Pillars. We're looking at four pillars that hold up a church. It's not an exhaustive list. There's some other pillars, but but we think these four are essential to be a biblical church. Worship, we looked at that last week. Um, community, we'll look at it. We'll look at this, this Sunday. Discipleship next week, and then mission. So we we saw last week that we glorify God. We gather together, we grow like Christ, and we go on mission. Now, these four sermons are really kind of just a long introduction for another sermon series that will start in a couple weeks on mission. So when we get to mission, we're going to do a deep dive. Now, I want you just to notice the graphic here, the circles, um, because what I'm trying to stress here in how we're approaching missions later this fall is that these things all interrelate. You can't have a healthy Christian community that doesn't worship. You can't have healthy missions that doesn't also involve discipleship. And so these things mutually need each other, and they're all inside worship because the goal of everything we do as Christians is to honor the Lord and to glorify Him. So when we get to missions, this is the order, when we get to missions in a few weeks, I don't want us to ever talk about missions at this church and leave behind worship and leave behind Christian community and leave behind discipleship. Our goal when we go out to that world is to bring people a ton of good, but it's ultimately to bring them into the fellowship of Christ, to be growing like Christ, to be worshiping Him. And so that's why we need a long introduction before we talk about going. I also want to let you know that you can take notes. Here you have a page for notes. And also that we're posting the sermon manuscript with small group questions on the website. It's already up there. That doesn't mean you can leave right now and read it on your way home. But it's there. So you just, well, you got a small group meeting this afternoon? Click. You got the manuscript? Drop down to the bottom. You have small group questions. It'll be up each Sunday because we want, we want to engage these pillars. We want to walk up and put our hands on each one of these great ancient pillars together as a church. So we're going to be in Acts 2 today as we talk about community. That is on page 910 in your little blue pew Bible. So please turn to Acts 2. We're going to pick up at verse 36. And and I think it would be wise if we asked God's help before we jumped into Acts. So let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of church community and that we relate to one another this morning um, around your word. And we ask now that you'd come by your spirit, that you'd fashion this church by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, um, I was getting a haircut, and I fell into a conversation with the hairdresser. You know this can happen. And she learned relatively quickly that I was a pastor, and that led to a conversation about the faith. And she let me know that, that she considered herself a Christian, but I, I sensed a little hesitancy in her voice. So I asked her a question that I often ask people. I just said, do you, do you have a church? Do you have a church family? And this is where the conversation got interesting. Um, she, she told me that she had gone through a painful divorce and was single parenting, and that in that process she lost her church community. This was her experience. And that she was 
desirous to have another church family and she had visited a few places but nothing felt quite right. And so I, I asked her, well, what are you looking for when you, when you look for a church? And, and she said quite emphatically, well, I know this, I can't do fake and I can't handle shallow anymore. And as she, she talked, I realized what she was saying was that when the, when the surface of your life breaks, you can't, you can't handle a surface-level church anymore. She, she needed a church that, that she could connect with in her imperfections, a church that was deep, that was authentic, that was real. And as I, I listened to her, I, I realized that, and as I thought about this conversation, that that her experience, is, her experience is actually indicative of a lot of experiences that people are having today. And it's this kind of experience. It's where um, people are distancing themselves from Christianity, not because of Christian beliefs, but because of Christian community. Not, not because they disagree with Christian doctrine, but because they've been disappointed with Christian people. And, and they have found the church wanting. And this is a huge problem. What, what my friend needed, what she needed was a church that would help her deal with her loneliness, deal with her struggles where she could belong. And this is a very, in very important human need. You know, um, 20 years ago, Robert Putnam, uh, the Harvard researcher, um, in his best-selling book, Bowling Alone, he taught many of us that community is, well, it's dissolving or not doing so well in America and that individualism is growing. And he did this with a, with a very memorable image. Uh, Putnam pointed out that, that as bowling leagues are in decline in America, the amount of people bowling is increasing. Why? Because people are bowling alone. And during this time, another researcher, Roy Baumeister, who's a social psychologist, he started to research this aspect called belonging, right? People's seeming craving they have to connect with others. And he found that human beings crave belonging the way we crave food. His research pointed out two very interesting things. One, that, that a craving for belonging is universal in people and it's fundamental. It's one of our deepest needs. But even more interestingly, his research proved that there's a correlation between belonging and well-being. And I quote, belongingness, this is Baumeister's research, belongingness appears to have multiple and strong effect on emotional patterns and on cognitive processes. Lack of attachment is linked to a variety of ill effects on health, adjustment, and well-being. There's a correlation between belonging and well-being. Now, now, Christians shouldn't be surprised by this. We know that people are created in the image of a relational God and that this God we bear the image of has existed for time eternal in the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a perfect bond of belonging. And Christians also know that as Scripture unfolds and we see God's plan for the world in history, that it doesn't center around Him saving individuals to have wonderful private lives. It always moves towards Him calling a people to Himself that will have a unique togetherness and a unique love. So community is essential to Christianity 
And community is essential to human well-being. So don't you see, Christians, the opportunity we have? We, people who have a doctrine about community, we say it in the creed, we believe in the communion of saints. We believe in that as much as we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you see, those of us who believe in a doctrine of community may have a very, very needed balm to hold out to a world that is growing lonelier despite all its so-called digital connectivity. So Christian community may be our greatest apologetic today. And by Christian community, I mean our togetherness in Christ that includes both our gathering together on Sunday morning and all all the connectivity that overflows from that. Small groups, prayer ministry, service projects, Christians in this church getting together one-on-one to encourage one another midweek. I mean our Christ-centered togetherness. So I think it's crucial that we, we take a moment this morning and we make sure we understand the nature of Christian community, what's unique about it. And we ask ourselves, we really ask ourselves, what is Christian community like at the Falls Church Anglican? Is it up to par? Are we committed enough to it? And so to, to address some of these questions, I'm just going to take us into the first example of Christian community in the Bible. It comes up in the book of Acts. Now, you, you may remember that Acts is written by a physician named Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And I only tell you this because I want you to know how carefully researched Acts is when we read it. And it was written for a man named Theophilus who was a doubter. So, so this is a very carefully researched historical document with the Holy Spirit carrying Luke along. And Luke records for us in Acts 2 the birth of the church. Now it comes on a day of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out. Peter, the leading apostle, gets up and he gives a great sermon there in Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up at the end of that sermon, verse 36, chapter 2, and we're going to watch how that sermon doesn't just land on individual ears, but it ends up calling a people together. And as we do this, I'm going to point out three truths about Christian community. Christian community is founded around a unique calling. It must develop a distinct culture, and it's marked by a dogged commitment. You can remember that, right? Calling, culture, and commitment. We need to look at how all these play into making Christian community something utterly unique. So first, calling. What does calling have to do with the Christian community? Well, in Acts 2, verses 36 through 47, our passage, we can see that you, you, it breaks into really two parts or two events. The, the first part is about God calling people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. So you'll see there in verse 36, we're at the end of Peter's sermon. And then in verse 39, we read about people's reaction to the sermon. But in verse 39, I want you to notice that through the preaching, God's calling people to himself. So verse 39, the promise, this is Peter, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You can circle that word call. God is calling people to himself. You can see that through the preaching of the word. That's part one. However, part two in verses 42 through 47 show us that God is not only calling people to himself, but he's calling them 
to one another. So picking up at verse 42, it says, they, these are the people that heard the sermon, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. You could circle that word fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then in verse 47, at the very tail end, we read this, at the end of that verse, and the Lord added to their number day by day all who were being saved. So notice this with me. In part one, God called them to himself. In part two, God added them to the people. He calls and he adds. He calls you to himself. He adds you to his people. So when God, this is the principle, this is the principle. When God calls a person to himself, he at the same time calls them to be part of his family or part of his people. Um, Paul puts it this way in Romans 12. He says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Jesus puts it like this, the, the night he washed the disciples' feet and had the last supper. He says, I have one new commandment for you, love one another. And he says this to his disciples, by this people will know that you're my disciples and how you love one another. You see that? His calling to be my disciple is played out in how they love other Christians. So you see the principle. God calls to himself, simultaneously calls you to a people. Now, we talk a lot about calling today. You fellows will talk about it all year. And typically what we mean is our callings to our individual vocations, our callings to our particular marriage, our callings to a particular city. And God does call us to these things. But how deeply do we reflect on the fact that God calls us to other Christians? He calls you to a church. Now, some people might say, yeah, well, I know he does that, but that's kind of a, he calls us to a mystical communion of saints, you know, all the Christians that have ever existed. But I want to show you that, that this is not abstract. This calling to others is very concrete. Notice down in verse 46, that were told that they were breaking bread in their homes and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. The, the Christians are meeting together as group, groups in people's homes, their little house churches. Paul will, will write in his letter to the Colossians to thank the Christians in a town called Laodicea. And he says, send my greetings to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. You don't have abstract community when people are meeting in your house. So this is, this is a concrete people. We call it a local church that God is calling us to. So I, I just want to pause now and ask, how does this principle that the church is a people called by God, not just to himself but to one another, how does this principle impact how we think about our community at the Falls Church Anglican I'll just suggest two things briefly. Number one, I think it should, it should call us to not settle for man-made community. You know you don't need God to have community. <laughs> People do it all the time. There's churches meeting right now that don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, and they have community. Colleges build community. Political parties build community. Neighborhood organizations build community. You just don't need God to build community. People can build community. Here's, here's man-made community. Man-made communities typically build around affinity. 
Shared life stage, shared interest. A bunch of young moms get together because they're young moms. A bunch of teens get together because they're teens. Men gather, women gather. And we have affinity-based community in our church. And there's nothing wrong with it. Men's ministry, women's ministry, youth ministry. Guys go camping, guys go biking. These things aren't bad. But, but friends, we have to pause and ask a deeper question. Is there anything about the way we relate with people in this church that goes deeper than our naturally shared interest. Another way to put it would be is if you removed God, if God wasn't real, if he removed his presence from us, would it change anything about the relationships you're in in this church? And I think one way to probe this is to notice how unique or different God's way of building community is. We build community around natural affinity. God does just the opposite. God likes to build community around natural enemies, not natural friends. This is why the churches are such a wreck at so many different points in the New Testament. Because they're Jews and Gentiles. They're people that grew up hating Romans and they're Romans who grew up hating Jews. And they're called together into one body. Now why would God do this? Do you know why he does this? Because God loves to use your relationships in the church to show that a supernatural love for Jesus is greater than the natural hatred you have with other people. He loves to show that love for his son can outpace dislike among people. It makes his son look great when his son can reconcile otherwise irreconcilable people. So this simply means, I think, in how you think about relationships in our church, it doesn't mean you can't have affinity-based relationships. We need these. But you should ask, is there anything in this relationship that reflects the fact that if it's part of the church, it's built by God, not me? Because, see, a God-built church is not built around human preferences. And this means the community that that God builds, friends, it's not going to look like the community you or I would build. You should wake up at different points and say, well, I'm in relationships with people at the Falls Church Anglican that apart from Jesus, I would never hang out with. In fact, I disagree with about everything they say except for Christ. And for some reason, he's called us together. And it's really weird. It's not easy. Man-made community is quick and easy. God-built community requires faith and patience. So don't let us not settle for only man-made community in this church. But press into God-built community. A second thing that comes out of this principle that God calls us to himself and to one another is simply that you would think about how, how your orientation when you come on Sundays. Um, you know, you picture a person, you know, the AMC theater can create a community, right? You, you pick the movie you want to see, the time you want to see it, you go, you sit in the dark, and then you leave and you don't talk to anybody. But it got a bunch of people in the same room. What if Sunday morning was like that? We need to orient, and some, look, sometimes you come to church and you're so beat up and you're so tired, all you can do is sit in the back and leave early, and that's okay. There's seasons like that, but our, but our overall feel of our church needs to be more where when we come on Sunday, we're thinking, how do I become an open door through which people can enter into belongingness here? Am I an open door or a closed door in how I sit, in how I arrive, in who I choose to talk to, in my facial expressions, in my jokes, in my storytelling? Am I an open door through which God can call people into this place or am I closed off? So think about these things 
because God is building a people and he's going to use you to do it through. That's the first thing. The, the community, the Christian community is founded on not the preferences of men, but the call of God. Second, we should ask about its culture. Um, we see culture come up in this passage in an interesting verse. It's verse 40, um, and it's around the phrase crooked generation. So it says, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, so crooked generation, here the word generation means kind of the sum total of all the people living in the area. Crooked means it's morally bent, it's off. And so they're being saved out of a culture. So we would assume that this new community that's meeting in people's houses, that's having fellowship, we would assume it should have a different culture, a non-crooked culture. And I just want to press into this and see if this is the case. Now let's think about a community's culture for a minute. Have you noticed that the way a community is entered into can dynamically impact its culture. So for example, um, years ago, I had a friend who was an RA, a residential assistant, um, in a dorm at Harvard. I, I was in seminary, just you know, 30 miles north, and, and I went down to visit her in the fall. And so she's a grad student, she's an RA, and I got to spend some time with that kind of whole floor. And um, that, that community at Harvard had a certain type of culture. Um, you see, people entered that community through giftedness. And so you felt the, a culture with a subtle competitiveness, a lot of ambition, even a little bit of elitism. Because these were people who got in this community because they are profoundly talented. And during an application process, they hid all their foibles as far in the closet as they could. And they put their best foot forward. And that created a type of culture. Now, around this same time, I had another friend who invited me to go to an AA meeting with him. Ray, he was engaged to my cousin at the time, and um, he was sharing his story of recovery. He asked me to come. We were talking about the Lord a lot. It was, it was actually one of the neatest experiences of my life. So we're at Alcoholics Anonymous, and he shares his story, and there's people from all different races and, and, and socioeconomic classes, and the community there was very, very different than the one I experienced at Harvard. It was marked by um, a profound profound honesty, profound meekness, and an unabashed acknowledgement of a need and a longing for help and hope. And do you know that community, it wasn't entered through giftedness, it was entered through brokenness. You see, the way you enter a community impacts that community's culture. So how do you enter the church community? we make you read your resume at the door, ask you your GPA? How do you end up here? Now, this is laid out for us in a very vivid way right in this passage. We can see how people enter the church community through the end of Peter's sermon and the reaction of the hearers. You enter it, put simply, I'll unpack this, you enter it through an encounter with the gospel. And so Peter says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So Peter has just laid out that Jesus is the Son of God. He was crucified for these people's sins. He's resurrected and he's now their Lord in Christ. Here's their response, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
That's a great phrase, cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So let's think of the posture here. Is there giftedness coming forward? No, it's not. The gospel is laying them low. Luke, the physician, is using the image of a knife cutting a heart. And look at their response. Brothers, what can we do? We're in trouble. We're sinners. We have no part of God. Please help us. They're under conviction. So here's the first thing to notice about entrance to the the community. Uh, It happens through the doorway we could call conversion or encounter with the gospel or encounter with Jesus. And the first thing encounter with the gospel does is it lays you low. Because because it it says you have such a profound need and then you become, you, you become aware of this. And so the, the entrance point of the gospel is you, is you in desperation saying, I've got to admit, I'm powerless. I can't fix myself. I can't fix my life. And I can't fix the world. And I don't know where to turn. And if God is in the business of helping people, I have my hand up because I need help. Now, a community that, that is entered through that door What kind of culture should it have? I want to suggest that one of the markers of a community entered by the gospel should be a a culture of profound humility. Christians should be humble people, not proud. We can be proud of Jesus. But friends, if you're new to this community and, and, and we feel impressive to you, we're tricking you. I mean that. If you really knew... That it's so bad that God's son had to be crucified to clean us up. If you really could see, you wouldn't want to sit near us. I mean that. I apologize if you have felt pride in this church. There's no place for it for people who have touched the gospel. There should be a profound humility here. But friends, that's not all. The gospel doesn't leave you laid low. Peter doesn't say, good, you scumbag, sit in the back. Notice what he does. He, he immediately, the gospel lays you low in order to lift you up. Notice what Peter says. He gives them a path. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what this means? To To repent and then be offered baptism is actually to be offered a pathway to be born again and to have new life. Baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit comes to to mean for Christians becoming God's son or his daughter. These people are lifted up so much higher than they ever could have imagined. You see, along with a, a culture marked by humility, our church, the Christian community, entered by the gospel also must be marked by honor. By a profound sense of honor. The way a city honors troops when they come from, from war. The way a city honors champions of a sports team. We should be honoring one another as those for whom Christ has died. That God has chosen to be his sons and daughters for eternity. Friends, and honor. Remember, remember Paul says in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. And honor means more than just being nice. Honor means you get to know a person enough to truly esteem them, to lift them up, 
to respect them profoundly, to show them gratitude and dignity, to see into their eyes through the eyes of Jesus Christ, to realize that they are an object of God's fierce, unending love. So a community, friends, that's created by the gospel must have a culture that reflects the gospel. Falls Church Anglican in Washington, D.C. Falls Church is an incredibly well-educated area, somewhat wealthy, all types of reasons to think we enter this community for all the wrong reasons. We should be marked, and may we be marked, by gospel humility and gospel honor. That's the calling that founds the community. That's the culture. It should foster just some of the culture. Let's conclude by, by looking at um, the commitment. The community requires a particular type of commitment from its members. We see this in verse 42 with a single word, the word devoted. You can circle it. I'll read you the verse. And they, verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the, the prayer. So there's four things they devote themselves to. Before we get into that, I just want to pause on this word devoted. That's where I get the word they're, they're committed. Um, and, and devotion... Um, I mean, it has the idea of a dogged commitment. It means to adhere to something firmly, to persist obstinately. It's the opposite of being lax or half-hearted or indifferent. And, you know, one way to, to, to state this pointedly would just be to put it in the negative. So here's what a Christian community is not. It's not the community that neglected the apostles' teaching, neglected the fellowship, neglected the breaking of bread, and neglected praying. That's what we're not. But instead, we're committed to these things. So let me just first try to point something out about what this commitment means in general. And, and I, I hope this is helpful for you before we get into the specific things we're committed to. All these things, this commitment, all these things, whether it's um, the apostles' teaching or the prayers or the fellowship or the breaking of bread, they all have in common Christ. So commitment to the apostles' teaching is commitment to the word of Christ. Commitment to fellowship is commitment to the fellowship of Christ. The breaking of bread is the body of Christ. Prayers is commitment to praying to Christ. And so what you need to see is the way you commit to a church community is not through a commitment to your feelings for a church community. It's also not a commitment to yourself, what you get out of that community. Those things matter. It's first and foremost an overflow of your commitment to Christ. When you are committed to Christ, you are committed to what he's committed to. When you love Christ, you love what he loves. And so when you look upon him, you see his eyes move from you down to his bride on Sunday morning. He loves her. She's precious to him. And through your commitment to Christ, you are fueled in your commitment to Christ people. So begin your relating to a church in your relating to Jesus and let him bring you here. Let him mediate. You know, you know we're taught in the Bible that Jesus is our mediator between, with us and the Father. You know that he mediates for us. Do you know he's also your mediator in the Christian community? You relate to those in the church through Christ. You see them through his eyes. You see them through his work in their life. You, you love them with his love. So we want to be committed to each other out of our commitment for Christ. 
Let's look at just, just a few brief ways then, like that this commitment takes form. I don't want to leave it overly abstract. You could think commitment's just a feeling you have, but how does it happen concretely that you express this commitment to Christ by commitment to his people? And I'll just say first, it involves Christ's word. You, you commit, your commitment to Christ overflows in commitment to his people when you're willing to share his word with them. I mean, Luke tells us in verse 42, they, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to the word of God. And do you know that, that these people didn't have a bunch of books? The average Christian, Christian didn't have a, a scroll of Isaiah at home to read in their quiet time. They never could hear the Bible. And do you know what a treasure it would have been to be walking along, to be one of these sisters in the early church, and to just be hungry for a word from God, and to have your other sister in the church say, do you know what, I've been memorizing Psalm 23. I want to tell you, Lydia, the Lord is your shepherd. Oh, I've heard that before. But I didn't have anybody to speak it to me. So let me ask you, do you speak God's word to your brothers and sisters in this church? Or do you just speak your words, your advice, your opinions? They may be good, but that's not what's going to uphold their soul. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who thought a lot about community. He died when he was just 39. He tried to build a little community at a seminary. And in his book, Life Together, he reflects on the role of the word of God in our relationship with other Christians. He writes the following, Christians live entirely by the truth of God's word in Jesus Christ. God put this word into the mouth of human beings so that it may be passed on to others. God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. What a privilege. There will be a time when your friends in Christ in this church are too discouraged to believe in the word of God for themselves. And it will be your mouth that God will choose to speak a soft word of encouragement into their ears. So we speak the word of God to one another. The passage goes on to say we also serve one another's practical needs. Verses 44 and 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This isn't an early communism or communalism. Christians are allowed to have private property. You see it all through the New Testament. People actually own houses. They own cloaks. They own scrolls. They own donkeys. What it means is a whole new orientation to how you hold on to your possessions. We come to ask, how can I use what God has given me to serve the practical needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ? So here's what we've said. Community is essential to Christianity, and community is essential to our deep human need for belonging. So we need to hold out to the world, not just any community, but a community founded by the calling of God, not the preferences of men. A community that fosters not the culture of a crooked world, but the culture of the gospel. And a community that's not marked by indifference, but a passionate, dogged commitment. And I'll leave you with four. I'll hit these quick. Four practical ways to do this. Number one, commit. 
You have to commit to a church. If you don't like this one, that's okay. Leave and find another church. But commit to a church for at least two to five years if you can. It takes time to get to know a people. You can't tell on one visit. Commit to a church. Second, be patient. I talk to people in this church. They've been here hanging out for about a year. And they'll say to me, you know, I just, I don't feel deep belonging yet. You know, I've met a few people though. And I would say to you, that's pretty good. You've been hanging out for a year. You've met some people. Friendship is really hard. We're terrible at it as a culture. Our patterns, our busyness, we're not good at this. Look how sick the world is. But don't let that make you give up. Double down. Commit to a plan to connect to this church. Get as much face-to-face time as you can. Come on Sunday mornings. Join a small group. Prayerfully ask God. Be patient that he can bind you deeply here. Third, if you are a member here, I want to ask you to focus on building gospel bonds in your current relationships. In your current friendships with the church, are they mainly built around affinity and shared interest? Or are you doing things that show that your connection is ultimately because God is calling you both to himself? Is there anything about your relationships here that reveal the gospel? Build gospel bonds through speaking the word to each other, through praying with one another, through reminding one another the hope we have in Christ. Fourth and finally, put away your daggers. Your daggers are the things you sharpened in the crooked generation that you stabbed people with who differed from you with sharp words and jokes and barbs. Friends, God's going to call people together where We have different opinions, especially about things like our our views of governance and our views of personalities in our culture. And what I hope you saw from this passage is people don't get into the church because they have perfect politics. They get into the church because they're a mess. And we dare not put a blockade at We dare not hold our opinions, our ideologies as a dagger up to the jugular of their faith in Christ and say, if you don't agree with me on this... I question God's love for you. Now that doesn't mean that once we're inside the church and we build relationships that we can't get together and argue about politics. Go at it. There are certain political views that are more Christian than others. Persuade one another in your discipleship. But don't do it in a way that questions God's love for a person based on their current understanding of fiscal policy. Why? Because God's building this church, not you. And we have no right, if we're Roman centurions, to question the Jewish boy that's been called in. You don't think this was hard for Paul? He says in one letter, the members of Caesar's household greet you, and he's bringing Jews into that community? He surely said, this is the place where you turn your spears or your swords into plowshares. So put away your daggers. These are people for whom Christ died. And so for the sake of my hairdresser in North Carolina and so many dear people like her, Falls Church Anglican, let us not just believe beautiful doctrine, but let us have a beautiful community. For Christ's sake, for the hope of the world, let us be the people of God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus We just acknowledge that we're called to one another. And we ask that you would help us 
love each other in how we love you. Amen.